This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi guys, I'm John Weeks from Plant-Based Face-Off, the Instagram page all about trying new plant-based food alternatives. I try, compare and rate the latest food in the vegan world and let you know which is best. I'm talking everything from burgers to cheese to chocolate. Check me out on Insta at Plant-Based Face-Off. Now though, it's time for this week's podcast. Enjoy. We are back. It's me, Rob. It's him. James, is that the part where I need to come in? Wow, we are a little bit rusty, aren't we, after a little break or two? (laughs) You've missed this, haven't you? This professionalism. Uh, You may have heard that little gap at the start of the podcast there, the little bit of music. Um, There was supposed to be a bit there that said, uh, you're listening to the Eurotrip, the contest and me. Uh, Normally we get my girlfriend to voice those bits for us. Uh, She's been quite busy today. And you know when you just think you might be pushing your luck if you ask for something? I I, I didn't want to do it. It would be a bit like poking a bear, I think, today. So I I didn't go for it. But I'm hoping that there'll be the Eurotrip, the contest and me uh, in, in in the next few weeks or so. Because we're here for the next six weeks with these special episodes. We certainly are. And we're very, very excited to be back, bringing you something a little bit different. You'll be used to us talking your ears off. Uh, during Eurovision season and national final season. But this time, over the summer, over the next six weeks, we're going to bring you some very special interviews with some very special guests. 
we will be speaking to well-known Eurovision fans across the globe. Many of them based in the UK, but not all. And we're going to be asking them all the very same questions. And I bet you're all delighted that I have to say the word questions a lot throughout the course of this series because I can't say it very well, as you've probably just realised. But we have had some amazing conversations and I can't wait to bring you some of them over the next few weeks because you're going to hear some stories that I guarantee you haven't heard anywhere else. So stay tuned to find out who we'll be chatting to today. You're listening on Acast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This is the Eurotrip, the contest and me. It is so good to be back with you. I have missed you. James, have you missed everybody? Absolutely. I've missed them more than you've missed them. Thank you for being back. Thank you for returning, given that the podcast feed has been a little bit quiet over the last couple of months. But I hope you won't mind me and the little fella having a few weeks off, because Eurovision season, a little bit little bit tiresome, a little bit knackering. Rotterdam was incredible. And here we are, looking ahead shortly to 2022, but something a little bit special before then with this brand new series. But James, do you want to fill everybody in? What have you been up to? What have you been up to over the last few weeks? I've not really been up to much. As you say, Eurovision season, during national final season, Eurovision, remember Eurovision week itself, wow, that was busy. It was just so hectic. It was so relentless. I've just been having a little bit of a break. What about you? Uh, quite, Quite busy at work, quite busy at work, to be honest. Spending quite a lot of time in the garden. Uh, bought some lovely dahlias the other week. I don't Ooh. know if anybody knows what a dahlia is. You can uh, Google that. It's a nice, nice pink, nice pink dahlia. Uh, three of them we got for the garden. Uh, spent a lot of time planting them, looking after them, watering them. Uh, they're all dead now. Ah, uh, you can tell you've been spending a bit more time with me as well because very excitingly we've met up twice for the first time since we started the podcast, and you can tell so because you've got a little bit of a Geordie twang in your accent as well now. Yeah, much like you do when you have a new partner and you want to introduce them to your parents. I introduced James to my parents just last weekend. What did you, what did you think of Nigel and Gillian? I love Nigel and Gillian. Maybe more than I, than I love you. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're great people. They're great people, and I can see where you get your charm from. Very good. They'll love to hear that. They will. Uh, I forced James to sleep in a tent outside, though, <laughs> uh, and uh, it was it was pretty damp. So have you managed to come through with or without hypothermia? That was the wettest weekend I have ever endured. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's true. I've heard some stories. <laughs> no, honestly, I've not camped for about 15 years. I've not slept in a tent for, for that long. Um, but no, it was it was a delight. It was something different. And I got to see your lovely little face for the first time in a long time. So what a joy it was. Some business. Just before we get to episode one and our first interview, and we tell you who we are talking to on this very first episode of The Contest and Me. A little bit of business, as I said. Miles in Cologne. Mm. If you were listening, we've got a bone to pick with you, Sunshine, because you may remember, everybody listening, that we ran the Eurotrips Eurovision 2021 sweepstake, quite a mouthful, just before the contest in May, and it was won by Miles in Cologne. James, you lovingly sent Miles your box of Eurovision memorabilia. I did indeed. I went through a very long, laborious process of registering the parcel and weighing the parcel all online. And then I found this magical post box that I've never seen before that you can put parcel into. You know how you can normally just put letters in? This one has a big handle and you pull it down, you put your parcel in. And I put my parcel in, but I was told 
once you've pushed the handle back up, pull it back down again and check that your parcel's gone in. Luckily I did because I pulled it back down and the parcel was just sitting there so anybody could have had it. So I had to then go to the post office. Anyway, as I said, it was a laborious process. Cost eight of my English pounds and miles. I don't know if you've got it. So I hope it hasn't gotten lost somewhere between here and Cologne. So Miles, this is an on-air plea. If you've got the box, let us know. We sent Miles an email. He's not replied. I hope everything's all right with him. But uh, Miles, if you're listening, please do get back to us. Let us know whether you've got James's box, because as we all know, everybody listening, that's full of some money cannot buy Eurovision memorabilia. I think the phrase is money wouldn't buy Eurovision <laughs> memorabilia. <laughs> For a reason. But to today, to the series... The contest and me. James Rowe, would you like to find out who we are talking to on episode one of the series? Yes, please. We've been talking about a lot of things not to do with the podcast so far. A lot of jeopardy surrounding who the first guest is. Maybe it says it in the title, so maybe people already know. But Rob, please put everyone out of their misery. Who is joining us today? So joining us today. Yeah, didn't think about that. Maybe it's in the title. Mm-hmm. You, you might have already read it, you might already know. Maybe it's not in the title, who knows. Anyway, we are joined by the BBC broadcaster Paddy O'Connell. Now, if that name rings a bell, he was the BBC's Eurovision commentator for the semi-finals from 2004 all the way to 2010. He also has hosted for many, many years the London Eurovision Party done loads of other Eurovision stuff alongside that, and he is a huge fan of the contest. So the perfect person to speak to on episode number one. And when we speak to the guests each week, we're going to be asking them all the very same question to find out what their credentials are as a Eurovision fan. They're very easy questions, but we end up down some rabbit holes with some wonderful conversations. So shall we, Rob, just explain what all these questions are? So as well as their thoughts on the 2021 contest, blimey, I really do sound like I've been spending time with you, dinner. the 2021 contest? I should say, by the way, that my mum is also a Geordie, so maybe that's where some of that comes from. Uh, as well as asking for their thoughts on the contest we saw in May, we'll be getting their first Eurovision memory the moment they first fell in love with the contest, their favourite Eurovision year, their favourite Eurovision song, always a difficult one, their most memorable Eurovision moment. And now this one I'm especially interested in. If they were the UK's head of delegation, how would they change the BBC's approach to the contest? And finally, the one change to the Eurovision Song Contest, so the whole thing that they would most like to see. So as you can imagine, as a Eurovision fan yourself, you will have some great answers to those questions, particularly those last two about the UK's head of delegation and one change you'd like to see at the contest. And so do all of our guests, including Paddy O'Connell today. Absolutely. Well, let's waste no more time. Let's get to it. I was the one that was fortunate enough to chat to Paddy. Going to say it after the interview again, but just wanted to say thank you, Paddy, for joining us. It was fantastic to have you on the podcast. And we hope you enjoy the contest and me, everybody. If you want to tweet us, please do. Don't forget, we are at Eurotrip Podcast. And we're on email, we're on Instagram. On the email, we are hello at eurotrippodcast.com. And let's get to it. Episode one, interview one, Paddy O'Connell on the contest and me. This is the Eurotrip. Paddy, it's great to have you on the first episode of The Contest and Me. Welcome. Wow, I'm, I'm an icebreaker. Paddy, it is fantastic 
to have you. Of course, we are going to talk for the next little while about the contest that we all love, the Eurovision Song Contest. We will get to the questions that will give us a little insight into your history with the thing that we all love shortly. But at the time of recording, we are but a few weeks away, or rather, but a few weeks from the 2021 Eurovision Song Contest. What did you make of it? Well, I mean, what the truth is, is that the whole young Europe has totally decided the contest is cool again. All the old people who run the British media are still stuck in the same view that it's a load of bangalanga hoopa ding dong and must be ignored. It's all stupid. Oh, it's awful. So there's this huge, huge change where credible music, not all of it very good, credible music, with some of the key industry labels and technicians are at work and the UK's attitude is just an island. And what's happening is that hundreds of millions of people are watching, especially in the pandemic. The Americans are just starting to take note and the stage is set for Eurovision to roar back from some pretty dull years with some pretty rubbish old malarkey. I'm not saying it's always very good. That's my big critique of it. But what I thought about it was, this. The winner charted twice in the UK and charted in other countries around Europe. That's a really amazing piece of information. And they were picked up on Radio One, the Italians. I think, you know, it's so exciting. It, it, the stage is set. It's not an epic year, but I think it showed me that the, the old mother Eurovision, she's reinvented herself. She's like Doctor Who and she's ready to go. Well, that's one of the things I can only assume that we will learn as we go through some of your answers to the questions I'm about to ask you, is that the contest is an ever-evolving beast and it just continues to change. Yes. I mean, here's why. It is the oldest reality show, the oldest public talent show. It's not a reality show, is it? It's, it's, not, it's a it's sort of, who can believe in Eurovision? It's the, it's the t public telethon. It's the first telethon, really. The mixture of jury and the public voting. It's been copied all around the world in different guises. It's about a million years old and it's reinventing itself. They change the rules whenever it suits them. They had years when there were too many countries from the East were winning the semi-finals because of the voting system. So they tried to do that. They change everything they want, which is fabulous. I'd do exactly the same if I ran it. I'd say now it's very, very important that every song is three minutes long with only six people on stage. And then one year I just changed the rule and they change everything they want. And it's great. I love it. The more subversive they are, the better, to be honest. When they introduced Jeopardy into the scoring a few years ago, what, well, that's what TV production is. Why on earth didn't they do that before? Fabulous. It is fantastic. It's interesting that you mentioned all of those changes we've had down the years, because that is one of the things we will get to later on. But it is the perfect time to get to the first question, Paddy O'Connell, which is, what was your first Eurovision memory? Well, my first Eurovision memory was Save Your Kisses For Me, the win by the UK in, I'm going to say, 1976. Are you an expert, Rob? I think you are bang on. I think 1976, two years after, of course, Abra Waterloo. Abba, right. Now, in those two years, I went from being eight to being ten. So I suspect my bedtime rules changed. Uh, and for whatever reason, that's the first song I remember on the radio at the time. So 
obviously I could sing Waterloo in Swedish now, but in 1974, I have no memory of that contest at all. I know, you know, I'm a huge fan of ABBA, bloody, bloody, and they play a massive part in what the contest needs to do next, which is it needs to find the next ABBA. That's what it needs to do. So I think you asked me my first Eurovision memory. I remember, and this is why I remember, I remember thinking that I was alone in, as 10-year-olds in understanding that song, that it was about a dad kissing the daughter and she was only three, but it was only me who knew that. I remember because it came right at the end, I thought, I remember thinking to myself, I'm just so clever. I like this song has a code and it's about a three-year-old being kissed by her dad. It's only me who can understand it. Though it hurts to go it's impossible to stay But there's one thing I must say Before I go I love you I love you You know I'll be thinking of you In most everything I do Now the time is moving on And I really should be gone But you keep So that's, I deliberately remember Being a very precocious ten-year-old I loved radios. I fixed radios. I used to make recordings, uh, little OBs, little music recordings. I could mend cassettes, I could mend radios. I made recordings, sound effects, and I had cassettes. And that year, it all came together for me. I had a, I had a career in radio and the music business because I could understand Brotherhood of Man. It clicked with me as a young boy when I was getting into the, the music and the way to record music, which is how I make my living now. So the contest is one of the best TV shows in the world. Even the critics acknowledge the way it works. And also in terms of editing it and making music out of it, you know, it's exciting to, to young people. If you hate the music of Eurovision and you are 14, it's a very good way to see music technology at work on every platform, the way they use clips on social media, the way they use the stage, the way they use LED lighting first, the way they can get physical pits of set on and off the stage in three minutes. However, you, if you're a geeky little boy like I was, and even a geeky little girl, you can get there. There's something in it for everyone, like you said. If you look hard enough, there is something there for, for absolutely everybody. We move from the first Eurovision memory, which you've told us so brilliantly there, Brotherhood of Man, to, and it could be the same answer, maybe, the moment that you first fell in love with the contest. Well, the moment I first fell in love with the contest was fully 20 years later. We now come forward to 1996, Rob, when you've now worked out that I was 30. Because I was working on an American radio show and I put Gina G, I gave Gina G the first airplay in the United States. And... She didn't win, as we know. She should have done, as we also know. Um, and I put that song on first. And at that time, 96, which is, the, again, which is now 20 years ago, I predicted that America needed its own Eurovision Song Contest, state-to-state -state competition. And that's coming this year, and I'll get no money. I've been saying it for years to everyone who'll listen, and it's going to happen. It'll be such a massive hit, and I said it first, in 1996. So to people on this podcast listening, thinking, who's he? He's the guy who could have become a billionaire, is who he is. You're listening to a failed music impresario, is who you're listening to. 
So if we manage to get Krista Bjorkman back on the podcast, because we spoke to him back in March, and we spoke to him a little bit about the American Song Contest. Next time I speak to him, I'll say, Krista, why did you steal Paddy's idea? Yeah. I, I even spoke to Krista about it backstage when I first met him in Istanbul. He knows what I think. And inevitably, I'm not claiming, I didn't do any work. I just said, can you imagine? I worked in America as the Wall Street correspondent for years. Can you imagine? Texas voting for Maine? The answer is no. No, 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 no. We're going to go back to 1996 now because you mentioned Gina G as the moment that you first fell in love with the contest. You gave her the first radio play in America. Why didn't she win? Because I'm just looking back now at that moment where she was on the stage, which I think was designed around an oil rig like only they could do at Eurovision because it was, of course, in Norway that year. Why didn't she win? Yeah. Well, who did? In 96, it was Ireland again, of course. Yeah. I mean, we were so over Ireland by then. And inevitably, what was it? Was it sentimentality about the 90s? And there was just something, I suppose, so remarkable about the way we, we voted for Ireland so many times when we consider that we now don't. Ireland are in a worse situation at the contest than the UK. And it breaks my heart to say that because I think Ireland is the beating heart of Eurovision. And obviously that heart has been unfortunately stopped and in desperate need of a defibrillator. However, it doesn't mean I don't think that. So, you know, I think the thing is about it is it was genuinely the sort of jury era, wasn't it? And there was just maybe something about her and her little dress that just didn't do it with enough juries. I would say probably jealousy, to be honest, because people who were there that year tell me everyone thought she was going to win. If you were in the Euro club or in the backstage, people would just, Gina walked by and everyone would say she's going to win. late for me to be 30 and to fall in love with the contest, you know, because I'd been travelling the world a bit and I hadn't been in touch with the contest and I just suddenly saw its trampoline effect, the, the possibilities of it, the, the global nature of it, the, the size of it, the branding of it. So I mean, just inevitably, I really love that song. When I, It makes me happy when I hear it now. So I still love that song. Whereas there are many winners throughout the years I can do without unless I need brain bleach. We move on then. We've already spoken about 96. We've already spoken about 76. I'm going to ask you for your favourite Eurovision year. It may have been one where you were in the commentary box. It may not be. Yeah, no, it certainly is. My favourite year was 2004. Turkey having won in 2003 was Sirtab every way that I can. I was propelled with the Eurovision caravan to Istanbul in 2004. But it was a combination of disaster, death, and mystery that got me into the commentary box. My friend, Christopher Price, had died. Lorraine Kelly was booked to be the main star attraction. And it was my job to be a sort of geek in a box and just make a few kind of points that might be of interest. 
Hello there, welcome to Eurovision on location. This is where all the artists are staying. Beautiful pansies everywhere. The flowers are out, it's gorgeous. <laughs> it's we look like we're flogging timeshares now. Look up there. The enormous Polak Renaissance Hotel. If those walls could talk oh. about the Euro goings on. Goings on. The hangers on. The cultural exchanges. The bar. Hello. <laughs> green one there. Thank you very much. Matches your dress. Lorraine's claim was delayed. So I presented the first semi-final all on my own. And as a guy who likes, as I told you, from 1976, the contest gave me this view of technology and kind of I was mixing that song on my cassette recorder and it was only me who could understand it. There I was with these coded messages coming through and I was at the commentary box and I was the guy. What was it like being at a contest in Turkey? Of course, Turkey no longer in the Eurovision Song Contest, which is a, is a great shame. However, there has been talk over recent weeks that Turkey could return. Would you be delighted to see them back? Well, I would be delighted to see them back, so long as they don't have any sort of homophobic way of coming back. They obviously went out saying it was depraved, slash, we don't win anymore. But actually, there's, a, there's quite a lot of sort of beardy men who don't like the gays, except secretly. So inevitably, I, I would say that Turkey should come back, but with its arms open not, and, and, you know, embrace everything about the contest, put a great song in and win it. Don't sulk the corner it's not a good look so they were fabulous hosts i had not been to turkey before and the turkish people welcomed us with open arms on the streets in the hotels and also eurovision supplies a local host who would therefore either be or speak turkish in our case some fabulous young bright musical students turk istanbul residents they just looked after us as part of volunteering for Eurovision, which is what people do all over the world. So it was fabulous fun. The Euro Club was in my, the bottom of my hotel. And I just spent my entire time dancing to Eurovision songs, either with Lorraine Kelly or the Irish act from that year, or the impossibly beautiful Yonsi from Iceland and the amazing Andy Canole, the commentator from Austria, who became my lifelong friend alongside Alexander Radic, head of delegation for Slovenia. And my eyes were opened to this international festival, which had only been ever been portrayed as one night of television. And, and again, guess what? Shock as UK doesn't portray European events. So I learned so much and I was, my eyes were opened and I arrived in my hotel room to the sound of explosive sex. And I spent the entire week we were there desperate to know which artist it was who had this marathon sex session next to my room on the day I arrived. And I finally found out who it was, and it was a honeymooning couple from Hull. Who wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility the UK could put forward one year, although not in 2004? Not in 2004. So it was a fabulous year. I mean, my eyes were on stalks the whole time. I, I don't think I slept. I, I really don't think I slept at what? all. What was uh, what was the experience of Lorraine Kelly in the Euro Club like? Well, she's such a kind person. I mean, she's one of those people whose star was was just just so bright, uh, and her, she's gone on, I think, to have a bigger show than she did then. So, she was very generous. She laughed a lot. She was great. She knew a lot of people in the industry. She, she was just effortlessly kind to the camera people. She laughed. We had dinner with her and Terry Wogan and Ken Bruce in Istanbul, 
all thanks to Eurovision. And I shan't, I shan't ever forget. And I'll always help the contest in the way it helped me. It boosted me. It gave me this insight into, and I speak French. I'm not just, just another guy who wants to build my career. I love French music and I love music from around uh, the Europe. So guess what? The Eurovision Song Contest sometimes delivers it. But it also gave me this technical side, this commentary side. In radio, where I'm making a living still, despite the fact that my rivals want the only programme I have left in my career, there is no purer thing than commentary. Uh, you know, you, you can hear how well Graham Norton does it, and you can hear how well Terry's best years did it, as opposed to his worst years. But inevitably, to get a chance to do it is so exciting professionally. And when it comes together that the audience loves the act, you've said something that is either funny or helps them, or most importantly, and of course I say this desperate that my many rivals have tuned out hours ago, when to shut up, when to not speak, or just a tiny sound like loved it, go girl, you're the winner, or Graham's very good at going, uh, uh. I mean, so they'll go, you know, we are the winner, thank you. And you'll go, Nyee. So <laughs> Graham's great at making sounds, which I never really did. So I can't stress enough the, the value of 2004. And I met people at the BBC who are also lifelong friends who've moved on. Some of them have moved off this mortal coil, but I'm still going. I've got loads of things I want to ask you, but I'm going to have to ask you for a short answer because there are so many things that I want to ask you still. Favourite Eurovision song? And that is an impossible question, I know, because I can never answer it myself. Well, I think what I'd probably surprise you by saying is I would, on a good day, I would say Waterloo. But everyone says Waterloo. It even won the Radio 2 search for the best song. I love Natasha Saint-Pierre's Je Come On Arm for France 2001. love Celine Dion's win for Switzerland and you can see that I just love a kind of French song I'm really very straightforward and I, I did like this year's French song for the same reason shock as man who likes French song sung by woman likes French song sung by woman but I do also like a simple song sung by men but there's one that I really love and I play to this day it's a good one. It's a good one. Some some big songs in 2001. So for you to have picked the French entry, really, really interesting. But no. Well, well I mean, I, I'm not an expert. People think uh, perhaps I am. But I'm, as I say, I fell into it almost through tech. And it's almost like this professional thing for me. And in the middle, I've been educated by friends and fans and foes. I get very educated by the people who hate it. And I love to know why. Why do you hate it? And why do you think the UK never puts its own entries in its own charts? Can you just answer me that? And then I'll do the bit about how it's all rubbish. But can you tell me the last UK song that went to the top 10? Just tell me that. And then we'll do the, then we'll do the next bit about the UK. But they never know that. They don't care. And, and that's where normally that chat ends, I imagine. It's normally quite a short conversation. Well, I sound a bit angry, but I mean, really, there's so much fun I've had. Don't forget, I've also hosted the London preview party. 
I've done that mostly with Nikki French for more than a decade. So it's just led me to, to do so many things and meet so many people. Now, this is the answer that I'm most interested in. Not that I haven't been interested to hear the rest of them. Of course I have done. Paddy O'Connell, your most memorable Eurovision moment, of which there will be so many from your many years in the commentary box. Lisa Angers singing for Cyprus. So she was a schoolgirl from Kent and she sang at in the Istanbul concert in 2004 and I cried on television. a contest that should be for young people by young people with some moments where old people come on and fall over their pants or something like that I don't know I haven't quite decided or host it very well or commentate on it very well she was 16 and she just sung this beautiful song and I was commentating and my voice cracked off the back then that that for me was a was a standout moment and it really bonded me as well with Suri the stage invasion in Lisbon Anyone who represents the UK, if you look at the recent experience of the people representing England at football, which is not the UK, but if you represent the UK on a national stage, you are on a hiding to nothing. Half the country hates you already. They, they want you to win, and they, but they secretly want you to lose. It's like a complete mind game. Suri was never going to win. And she kept going. That she had a stage invader, a, ma- a male in her personal space, and she kept going. And I felt so bonded to that woman. And knew, I knew that I'd have run off the stage screaming. And then they offered her a chance to re-go. She said, no, that was my performance. And ha- where do people get this, this from, this amazing instinct? So the schoolgirl from Kent, the UK entry in Lisbon, I think it just reminds me and all the people who, who don't like it. These are human beings. So, and some of them have amazing stories and they sometimes can connect it into song. But the idea that you can brand 24 songs on Saturday night for the last, well, last 20 years, then 12 songs a night for the last 30 years, all rubbish. I just find it's like dealing with someone who has got a sort of psychosis. It would be like someone who doesn't like the rain rather than Lorraine. So those are two moments, but I'm missing so many more. I mean, you know, I mean, there was the, the man in the hamster wheel. There was uh, the Russian boy, Dima Bilan, his, when his piano caught fire and a woman got out of it, I said, she only came here to tune it. And I think that was one, <laughs> one of my best ever commentary lives. And then the, the Russian grannies, I mean, still to be beaten, I feel. I mean, you could go on. The, the thing is, it's a television contest. The Polish Milkmaids was the year that Conchita won. And Conchita won with a great James Bond-style song, with an amazing TV, Phoenix-like gold firework. However, the British jury, the British jury gave Conchita 12. The British public gave the plunging milkmaids with their phallic butter churning 12 from the public. 
So that's another favourite moment as well. I love the contrast of those two things. Ever the professional broadcaster you are, thank you for bringing us back to the United Kingdom because I'm a UK fan here on this podcast. Every year we have the same thing. Maybe this will be the year that we don't finish on the right-hand side. Maybe we'll make it to the left-hand side. So with your experience, and we're going to ask everybody this same question, if you were the UK's head of delegation, how would you change the UK's approach to the contest? What is wrong? What do we need to change? What do we need to do? They did change this year to a change I supported, which was to kind of go with a record label, go to the record business. So I thought that was good. Uh, Inevitably, I think what's got to happen is that the BBC has got to own up that the last few years since Andrew Lloyd Webber, really, it's lost its way. So it needs to partner. And and if it partnered, it would be perhaps a way of persuading the record labels to assist it. I mean, there's a lot of rivalry, don't forget. The BBC is a massive media brand. And if the BBC discovers the next global super, super brand act, that's not in the interest of all the people whose business it is to find. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of difficulty. A friend of mine worked at a radio station whose name I will not mention. And they were sent a memo saying, do not feel the need to talk about or promote anything from Eurovision. That's the memo sent to other UK radio stations to a friend of mine on air there. It's war out there on the airways. What should the BBC do? It should aim to put in one room, Kathy Dennis, the songwriter, Gary Barlow, People, but the people who launched The Voice have a secret meeting and ask them, just say, what's it going to take? And then inevitably, I know that Krista Bjorkman has offered to advise the UK. And, you know, Sweden is an interesting country because if we don't take it seriously enough, they obviously take it too seriously. And I don't particularly want the UK to be Sweden. So I would urgently have a meeting in a room, preferably not Zoom, of of hit songwriters and performers who have an ear for the contest, and I would ask them. And I suspect the answer is probably a partnership, probably because there are other members of the EBU in the UK. ITV is a member of the EBU. So you could imagine, they've done it with BritBox, You, you could imagine something bigger than, you know, what we used to call TV centre. Just, you know, just try and find an honest way to represent the country. So I would say partner, you know, partner with, and probably you've got to have more of a public role, but between two or three great songs with one great artist, perhaps, let the public choose the song. I mean, inevitably, Andrew Lloyd Webber was a, a year when they clearly saw this. And so extraordinarily, Andrew Lloyd Webber interviewed Vladimir Putin in the run-up to the contest. That's kind of like what it can be like. And I think we came fifth. I'm not sure the, the British want to win it, but, you know, inevitably, I want Britain to win it, the UK to win it. Paddy, you've taken us on a fantastic journey. I'm going to let you go in a second. From 1976 to rampant sex in Istanbul, you know, it's been... One hell of a ride. So if there is one change that you were to make to the contest going forward, what would it be? I'd bring back the the things that go wrong. I I love the show Slickness, and I love the way every act can be changed within three minutes. But still, great live TV is still so addictive. 
And if you hire these amazing, talented commentators, which they have done in the past, there is so much scope to make great live TV with jeopardy, you know, things that aren't quite running to time. So I would relax it. It does look to me like a child that's got helicopter parents. It's never really, it's never done anything wrong. It's never broken the law. It's never fallen over and broken its tooth. It's become right now, you know, terribly, terribly well behaved. And I would like it to put a bit of the jeopardy back. I'd also quite like an, a live orchestra, but I know that, that I'm, I'm whistling into the wind there. So I, I'd say just calm down, calm down, relax a bit and let something happen, maybe in French that we don't quite understand, an argument or something's not ready. I mean, they would hate me talking like this, but I just think inevitably, if every song's three minutes, and then how many of those green room interviews are actually very good? So, I mean, maybe we don't need them, you know, and the false jeopardy about this, you know, maybe it takes a very special person to do them. I think Rylan is one of those people, I think he can do green room interviews, I think Graham's a great commentator. I think, you know, inevitably, the Swedish woman, what's her, what's her name? Yeah, Petra's got the right tone. So they, they, there is talent out there. And when those moments come out on the screen, it's very funny. A perfect place to finish. Paddy O'Connell, thank you very much once again for being our very first guest on The Contest and Me. Oh, my God. Thank you for having me. Well, there it is. Paddy O'Connell, guest number one here on The Contest and Me, done and dusted. What an absolute pleasure it is to have him on the podcast. He had so many great stories, didn't he, Rob? Did you have a favourite? I did. It has to be the explosive sex anecdote, obviously. (laughs) I'd love to say that that is not the only explosive sex anecdote that you will hear over the course of this series. Spoiler, it is, unfortunately. Explosive sex does not does not reappear. Maybe it will when me and James return to the Euro trip proper in September. I don't know. Who knows what <laughs> turns that will take when we uh, when we return and start looking ahead to to Italy properly in 2022. But I love chatting to Paddy, especially wanted to find out more about that dinner in Istanbul. Him, Lorraine Kelly, Terry Wogan, Ken Bruce. I know you're surprised that I didn't ask them what they had to eat for dinner. I bottled it. In all honesty. <laughs> I bet it was a flatbread and some hummus involved, maybe a shish kebab. I know I said um, Paddy O'Connell brought some great stories there, but you imagine winding the clock back, what, 15, 16 years, and sitting around that dinner table, I bet you there was some explosive stories that'll never see the light of day from that conversation. Yes, I certainly agree with you. Wow. Oh, But Paddy, thank you so much. We had so much. And I know that you and Paddy, a lot in common, loves a bit of the French music, as we all know that you do as well. I'm telling you, you are alone. Everybody loves a bit of French music. Me and Paddy are on the same wavelength. I'm very, very excited to hopefully one day meet him and have a very extensive conversation about it. Very jealous I missed out on that when you spoke to him a few weeks ago. Now, do let us know what you thought of that interview of episode one of The Contest and me. You can tweet us at Eurotrip Podcast or on Instagram as well. And we'd love to hear what you thought on email as well. Hello at EurotripPodcast.com because we will, of course, be back same time, same place next week. We certainly will. We've, of course, got five more of these fantastic interviews to bring you. Next week is an interview that I've done with somebody very special, somebody very talented. So make sure you join us again in just seven days' time uh, for that wonderful conversation. Just to give people a little behind the scenes, convinced you only got that interview because they happened to be in quarantine at the time. Is that that true? (laughs) We shall explain more about that next week, I promise. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back 
next week on The Contest and Me. But for now, goodbye. Goodbye. 